Baby, oui, vous avez bien lu Brian Burke, le seul unique débarque à Dresser Tape. C'est toute une prise et on n'en est pas peu fiers à Dresser Tape. Très content de le recevoir. Euh, celui qui a l'air d'être euh, euh, bourru ou euh, qui a l'air d'être euh, bête, mais qui ne l'est pas du tout, qui a été super gentil, un invité extrêmement généreux. Euh, C'est un épisode qui est paru sur notre Patreon et de, déjà tout ça, belle euh, lurette. Ça date même de l'automne 2020, si je ne me trompe pas. Et on a décidé aujourd'hui de vous le partager à vous euh, en public. Parce que oui, hein, il y a des petites surprises des fois sur le Patreon. Si vous allez faire un tour, patreon.com slash tape, allez euh, vous inscrire et devenez membre de l'équipe. Et il y a même des tirages à chaque mois, tout ça, des épisodes d'avance. C'est la, la totale, quoi. C'est fun. C'est très fun. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, D'accord. Euh, donc, l'idée de recevoir Brian Burke est, est, est née de son livre. Euh, il y a beaucoup de livres qui sortent sur... Euh, des livres de sport de tout genre. Et ils sont de qualité, avouons-le, variable. Tu sais, des, 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 des bio euh, qui sont toujours écrits par des ghostwriters un peu moyennes. Mais je dois avouer que le livre de Brian Burke m'a tenu en haleine et m'a fait me coucher très tard, plus tard que j'aurais dû. Euh, la nuit, euh, c'est un gars qui a le sens du punch, qui a le sens des anecdotes, qui a tout un vécu aussi, tout un background euh, de, 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 venant d'une famille euh, moyenne qui était à Harvard, mais qui a eu Lou Lamorello comme coach à l'université avant ça, euh, qui a qui a GM de tellement d'équipes, les Whalers, les Canucks, les bref, il repasse vraiment la totale de, de sa carrière et euh, les anecdotes sont, sont au rendez-vous. Les, les trades qu'il a dû faire pour aller chercher les CD sur le draft floor la journée, ça s'enchaîne dans un rythme effréné et c'est croustillant, c'est savoureux, c'est du petit bacon en bouche. Alors, c'est pour ça que j'ai voulu le recevoir parce que je ne suis, euh, suis pas payé ou rien, il n'y a pas de placement de produit, c'est vraiment que j'ai aimé le livre. Donc, euh, j'ai contacté à sa maison d'édition, tout ça. Et puis, euh, après des mois de travail, des semaines euh, pour le moins, euh, leur faire comprendre qui était... Euh, Qu'est-ce ben, qu qui était de résultat, qui j'étais. C'est-tu chiqui, moi? Non. Mais euh, <rire> ils ont fait « OK, cool ». Ils ont vu le, le sérieux de la, la patente. Et évidemment que étant Brandberg, puis je pense que c'est beaucoup une, une manière aussi, évidemment, de, de le protéger de son publiciste, euh, on ne fait pas avoir le, le temps qu'on a, qu qu a souvent avec d'autres invités, une heure et demie tu sais, en montant. Donc, euh, il m'avait promis euh, une demi-heure minimum. Et euh, Brandberg était, tu sais, je sais, on connaît tous son personnage de, de bonhomme avec, euh, qui a l'air d'être toujours un peu chaud avec les cheveux mouillés puis le, la cravate défaite, mais qui est un peu, euh, tu sais, qui peut être rough avec les journalistes pour évidemment protéger ses joueurs. Mais c'est un gars extrêmement généreux, sympathique, qui s'est présenté, qui avait des anecdotes au corps de tour. Tu sais, dès que je nommais un truc, il savait, OK, non, attends, je vais te trouver une histoire par rapport à ça. Donc, il était super généreux. C'était en direct de son bureau, les chandelles, des CD en arrière, tout ça. Il était vraiment, vraiment fin. Puis tu sens que c'est un bon monsieur, c'est un père de famille, c'est un grand-père. Euh, il, il y a encore des jeunes adolescentes à la maison de son deuxième mariage. Donc, il, il est très, très, très... Euh, dans la vraie vie, tu sais, il a quand même le cœur sur la main. Um, donc, évidemment, on ne fait pas faire huit heures avec lui, mais euh, il y avait tellement de plaisir et il était tellement généreux qu'on a fait quand même plus qu'une demi-heure. Euh, je ne sais pas jusqu'où j'aurais pu pousser ma loque. Je pense que son publiciste avait dit une demi-heure au cas où ça avait vraiment été la cata puis que euh, j'étais à chier puis que tout ça s'en allait nulle part. Mais non, il nous a donné quand même plus qu'une demi-heure. Ça a été super le fun. Et euh, c'est quand même un, un bon privilège de le recevoir au programme. Euh, depuis qu'on a fait l'épisode et depuis qu'il a été mis sur Patreon, j'ai dû réenregistrer des nouvelles intros et outros que, que vous entendez présentement parce que la situation a changé pour Brian Burke. À la fin du podcast, je lui dis « J'espère que tu vas retourner dans la ligne nationale si tu le souhaites. » Et il est retourné dans la ligne nationale. Il est maintenant président, si je ne me trompe pas, des 
pingouin de Pittsburgh. Euh, J'allais dire, euh, dire, mais il n'est plus là, là, là depuis un certain temps. Il était GM à Toronto. Il a été souvent GM dans plusieurs équipes. Il avait été président des opérations hockey à Calgary un petit peu. Puis finalement, il y avait cette association-là avait été terminée. Et là, depuis ce temps-là, il était dans les médias beaucoup à Sportsnet puis à CBC. Puis là, il y a eu l'opportunité, peut-être la dernière, tu sais, à, où il est rendu à son âge, à son, dans sa carrière. Et il ne pouvait pas passer par-dessus euh, Sidney Crosby et Malkin. Et l'opportunité, à chaque année, les Pingouins, on ne sait jamais, peuvent gagner une coupe. Donc, il est allé comme président alors que Ron Extall a été euh, engagé comme directeur général. Donc, voilà, ou comme disent les gens d'une certaine époque, directeur gérant. Directeur gérant, tu sais, dans ça va, on va dire ça. Donc, euh, voilà. Euh, donc, la date d'enregistrement, c'est le 1er décembre 2020. Euh, ça va dans tous les bars. On parle de, de plein d'affaires, de pourquoi il s'est déjà excusé à Marc Bergerin. Et on parle même de son amour des Monty Python, peux-tu croire. Donc, euh, le voici, le voilà, le seul et unique Brian Burke à Dreadful Tape. All right, I could not be happier this morning as we have a very special guest coming on. The one, the only, Mr. Brian Burke. Brian, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Is this your first French-Canadian podcast? It's got to be. It is my first French-Canadian podcast, and I apologize that I cannot do it in French. I'm unilingual, which is a real sore spot for me. Has it, has it ever been like a problem as a general manager at some point? No, no, I just, uh, I, I feel uh, like I'm highly educated. I graduated from Harvard Law School. Yeah. I was a Rhodes Scholarship finalist, but I only speak one language and it, tr it troubles me. I'm, I'm, ma I'm making certain my younger kids speak French. Do they? Do they? Yes. That's awesome. Yeah, so they're, uh, they, they, it's mandatory at their high school. They have to be fluent to graduate. So Really? Yeah. That's really impressive. Do you think you could have been uh, maybe a general manager of the Canadians had you, you know, spoke French? Uh, well, the problem with being the GM of the Montreal Canadiens is that you're stupid twice. You're <laughs> stupid in English and you're stupid in French. So <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that to Bergy. Yeah, that's a, it's a very hard job. What, wasn't it the same in, uh, in Toronto? Because the, the pressure is there too. Well, you're stupid once, but you're stupid a lot. There's a, a problem with the media. The media in Toronto isn't that vicious. Right. It's that it's so big. That's true. You know, people ask, like, you go in the dressing room at the Bell Center. The Montreal Canadiens dressing room is, is huge, but it's not for the players. It's for the media. Yeah. And so, you know, after a game in Calgary on a Saturday, a hockey night game, we might have 40, 50 people in there. In Toronto, mm -hmm. it's 100. It's crazy. It's just crazy. Um, you, when I say French Canadian, you've been in hockey for so long. Who's the first name that pops up in your mind, French Canadian? Mr. Belbo. Really? Yeah. One, one, of the, one of the proudest moments of my life is I went to Ron Lapointe, uh, the late, great Ron Lapointe, worked yep. for me, coached his, uh, our minor league team. Wonderful man. And um, I went to his funeral, and uh, Mr. Belbo was two pews behind me in the church. And he tapped me on the shoulder. He says, uh, Berkey, is this a mass? So this is a Friday. Is it a full mass? So if it's a full mass, you don't have to go to mass on Sunday. Right. Right. It takes the place. So, but if it's just a funeral service, it doesn't. You still have to go to mass. And I said, it's, it's a full mass, Mr. Bellavoy. He said, thank you. And he sat back. 
And I sat there thinking to myself, Jean Beliveau knows who I am. He knows my <laughs> name. I, I was, I was so happy. That's, that's a great story. Did you ever, that was the, the whole encounter. Have you ever, did you meet him afterwards or that? Would, I met him a couple one of the cool things when you work for the league is you get to be close with a lot of the former players. Like, uh, I got to spend some time with, with Mr. Howe. I got to spend some time with Mr. Hull. Uh, I met Stan Makita before he passed away. So one of the cool things about the job, I, I, I met um, Maurice Richard. I met Mr. Richard before he passed away. That's and it. I got to sit next to him at a dinner in, in New York. So that was back in 93 or 94 yeah. when I worked for the league. So uh, one of the cool things about working at the league is Gary Bettman wanted a closer relationship the league wasn't tight with their former players. And Gary Batman said, you've got to forge that link mm -hmm. to the past. So I got to spend time with a lot of these great old you, players. Uh, I knew Mr. Lindsay before. Yeah. It was great. And, yeah, Ted Lindsay, who did so much for the, the Players Association. Did you get your haircut from uh, from the Rocket Richard? He used to put, a, put it back just like you do. Yeah, well, that, you know what? After I got fired by the Leafs, the lady who cuts my hair said, you have looked like a cop your entire <laughs> life. <laughs> let's try some, let's try something different so she selected back um i'm not creative enough to come up with a look yeah. a tie but the whole tie thing this all yeah. started when i worked for pat quinn i would work out early in the morning like i'd yeah. go in at six pat would come in around seven seven fifteen we'd spend whatever time we needed to spend sometimes 20 minutes sometimes an hour where pat would lay out for me what he needed me to do that day then i would go downstairs because i went to work in jeans and a t-shirt Then I would go downstairs and work out, get dressed, and come up and go to work. And I'd come up like this because I wouldn't tie the tie until I had a meeting. Yeah. And eventually, because of sheer laziness, <laughs> I ended up not tying the tie at all. So it's, I'm not smart enough to cultivate a look. Yeah. This has just happened over time. Your persona was built through series of, you know accidents that's the only area in your life in which you're lazy it's the it's the time but all the rest yeah. you, put, you put the hard work in and, and let's talk about the book because i i read the book and i that's why i reached out to your publicist actually because i i really actually enjoyed it and i know people in my position are conditioned to say the things like that but i really actually did uh and the reason why i did is because it felt like sitting with you at the local irish pub Uh, at the corner and you telling me your life story over a pint same vocabulary same expressions uh, there are curses when curses need be uh, and it's just like it really felt genuine you know the way you tell the story and I, I'm wondering how you managed to do that uh, with Stephen Brown did you actually write some things down and then send it over to Stephen or you just spoke and, and told stories to Stephen and he would put it into words how did you guys do it well So this goes back um, to 2007 when we won the Cup in Anaheim. Stephen approached me about doing a book. And I really like Stephen Brunt's books. I think he did a marvelous job on mine. But you're right. The one thing I said to him is I want people to feel like they're sitting in my office. I want them to feel like they're sitting at the table when I did the deal on the floor for the Sedins. So there's a, that's why so much detail went into it. And that's why. The important parts of the book, I went back and had people who worked with me at the time read it over to make sure I had Dave Nonis read the whole section about the twins. Hmm. Did I leave anything out? Did I forget anything? So I wanted people to feel like they were part of that whole process. So I'm glad you said that. I think Stephen Brunt did a great job. Yeah. Had you, <laughs> you forgotten things that Dave reminded you? What's that? Did, did uh, Dave uh, tell you, like, oh, there's a few things you missed out on the Sedin twins and those are details or... 
No. We're pretty accurate. No, he said it was accurate. And, and I, I tried to fact check every part of the book. There's things that are like Gary Bettman called me after he read the book. He said, there's some things I remember differently, but I loved it. Right. And I said, Gary, I'm writing about stuff. Like when I write about when I started playing hockey, I was 13 years old. I'm 65 now. I'm going to get some things wrong. Yeah, for sure. And there's a few concussions in between too. So I'm going to get some <laughs> things wrong. But I said, I've made a conscious effort to get everything right that I could get right. And that's what you owe people. And what I wanted, I wanted people to finish the book and say, I enjoyed that. Like it's $25. That's a lot of money in my mind to buy mm -hmm. a book. And I hate reading a book and putting it down and thinking what a disappointment that was. So the number one thing I want, whether you like me or not, whether you like what I said or not, is right. did you enjoy the book? And so far, the, the response has been terrific. Absolutely. And I just noticed it, it's, it's written 35 bucks. So I, I paid 10 bucks over. <laughs> that's I got screwed. So I, I learned this just as you said. Uh, you've been, uh, you've been a GM for many teams, uh, Vancouver, Anaheim for, for maybe the young, youngest, uh, younger people listening, Toronto, Hartford. Uh, you've been uh, a GM in Toronto. Lula Mariolo, you talk about him uh, a lot in the book. He's been a huge influence on you. Uh, He was also a GM in Toronto, and you've mentioned on other podcasts how Toronto has, are right now in a very difficult situation with the contract. It locked over $30 million in, in three players. How would have Lou handled so many superstars in Toronto? How would, would he have handled the whole contract situation there? Well, first off, it's very easy to critique other GMs, right? This, I have the easiest job in the world because I'm always right. Yeah. And I think the key is to do it in real time. And I'm big on this. I'm big on, you've got, so if Toronto announces a trade today, I've got to take a position on that in real time. I've got to say today what I think of it. And I was very critical of the signing of William Nylander because that was the first of the, of the big contracts, right? So when they mm -hmm. signed John Tavares, I said in real time, I support this. I, I love John Tavares as a player. Yeah. But I said, it's going to complicate signing the other young players and it's going to create a cap situation, which is not healthy. I was right. And I also said, they're going to choke on the last couple of years of that contract, which you do seven year deals with guys his age. You're going to choke on the last couple of years of that contract. No question. Now they signed William Elander. I said, they just gave their sixth best player $7 million a year. Not only have they just inflated what they have to pay Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner, They've lost Jake Gardner and probably a couple other players. Boom. It all happened. So when I talk about this stuff, I do it in real time, and I've been right on most of it, not all of it. Now, you said three players at 30. It's four players at 40. It's way worse. Yeah. They've got four players, four forwards, not one defenseman, not one goaltender, locked up at 50% of the cap. Yeah. That is a recipe for disaster, and it's not going to get better. They seem committed When Kyle met with the media at the end, and I like Kyle Dubas, and I like Brennan Shanahan. A lot of people say they're just bitter because the Leafs fired you. Actually, I'm not. I, I think I didn't win enough games. I got fired. It's that it happens. Mm -hmm. But I also know what the, the path they're on is not going to work. And so at the end of the season, I'm a season ticket holder with the Leafs. At the end of the season, you meet with the media. I'm an expert on meeting with the media at the end of a disappointing season. I've done it many times. <laughs> What you say is, it was not good enough, I'm sorry, and here's how we're going to fix it. What Kyle said is, it's not good enough, I'm sorry, 
we believe in our in our people and in our system. And it's not going to change as long as they believe in their system, which has proven to not work. And they're smart people. I don't get it. Kyle Dubas is a really smart guy. He's a really good guy, too. I don't get how he can watch the playoffs the last two years and not realize there's a great premium on physical hockey in the Final Four. Right. Like there were 100 hits in the finals. There were 100 hits in two different games. 100 hits. And so you've got to have a team that can play that way, and they don't. So I think their cap, their their roster construction is flawed. It's dictated by too much money for too few players, and it's not enough big boy long pants hockey. Because because there's I I I can't picture Lou giving close to seven million to to Nylander, and you know the way Nylander held out. Doesn't it? Isn't it like doesn't like the agent? Like Nylander's agent knowing a guy like Lou who's been in the business for a hundred years and the way he he unhandled contracts goes to, to the kid and says, Look, you're we're not gonna win over Lou Lamoriolo. He's he's gonna win. He's he's gonna have you at his price. And and then that's where you, you get Nylander lower. When when that when isn't that the way it would have been with Lou? Like yes. he has. So he goes over to Switzerland and says, I'm staying here unless I get the money on. And I know what Lou would have said. I, years ago, many, many years ago, as a GM in Vancouver, Peter Schaefer went to Finland. And he said, I'm going to play here until I get the contract I want. I said, well, you better buy a good TV. Because that the only NHL hockey you're going to see is on TV. Right. So to, to me, I think Lou would have said, no, we're not paying Nylander. That means Marner comes in cheaper. That means Matthews comes in cheaper. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're flawed now. And, and by the way, they're talking about a flat cap for the next two years. Yeah. It's going to be a flat cap for five years. They're yeah. not going to get out of this cap hell until they trade one of those guys. Right. They're not going to trade Tavares. They can't. They can't trade Marner. They can't trade Matthews. I don't know what trade protection Nylander has, but that's the guy that they've got to move to address the defense. Right. On prend une petite pause de l'épisode pour que je vous fasse une annonce de la part de notre collaborateur Manscaped qui lance en primeur absolument leur nouveau lawnmower 4.0, la Cadillac du rasoir de poche et ça partout aux États-Unis et au Canada quand le 5 mai, oui, ma date de fête, si ça c'est pas un hasard fucking weird ou un hommage. J'aime mieux le voir comme un hommage. Euh, absolument, profitez de 20% de rabais avec le code DST20. Et oui, Dredd Tape, euh, DST ou David, Simon, Tortue, au, au manscaped.com, DST20 au manscaped.com. 20% sur toute la patente et le shipping gratuit complètement. Euh, c'est vraiment, il me l'a envoyé, c'est vraiment la Cadillac euh, du rasage de sacoche de monsieur. Il y a même une technologie skin safe, c'est impossible pratiquement de se couper avec cette affaire-là. Euh, on dirait que ça a été designé avec le génie de Elon Musk, le fantôme de Steve Jobs puis la vision de Wayne Gretzky. C'est phénoménal! C'est pas compliqué, c'est la CSST des couilles. Il manque juste une annonce où Claude Legault nous montre son paquet super bien rasé et on observe que sur ses couilles, il y a un petit chapeau de construction. 
Ah, oh, même ses testicules appliquent les règles à la lettre. C'est magnifique. Il euh, y a aussi une nouvelle option dans le, le Lawnmower 4.0, c'est euh, tu peux choisir ta longueur de coupe, <rire> de trimmer, de 1 à 4. Donc, tu peux autant donner à tes couilles le look euh, J.D. Temple saison 1 d'OD que J.D. Temple saison 4. Et si tu veux les bleacher de manière funky, ça... Ça t'appartient aussi. Euh, tout ça quand même malade <rire> qu'on interrompe un entretien avec Brian Burke pour parler d'un rasoir de poche. En même temps, c'est quand même quand même à propos d'une certaine manière parce que lui vient de l'époque où les initiations, c'était ça, c'était des gars qui retenaient des gars de force pour leur raser la poche euh, puis il y avait des incidents malheureux. Mais s'il y avait eu le 4.0 lawnmower à l'époque, il n'y aurait eu aucun accident. Et euh, Alors qu'aujourd'hui, tout ça, là, ces initiations-là, c'est illégal. OK. Alors, euh, je vous rappelle, obtenez 20% de rabais et le shipping gratuit. Pas rien quand même avec, la co avec le code DST20 au manscaped.com. Je vous rappelle, DST20 au manscaped.com. Allez, donnez à vos couilles ce qu'ils veulent. Écoutez-les. Donnez-leur amour, santé et sécurité. De retour à l'épisode. You, you've mentioned how, you know, it's easy to, to critique GMs and every NHL fan thinks he could be the GM. He, he's thinking I would have traded that guy, would do this for that and put, put, th put this guy there. But truth is, it's of course much harder than that. What's the hardest thing about being a GM you wish every NHL fan knew about? Well, I remember when I was a rookie GM in Hartford, I went to meet with Bob Ganey. Yeah. And he was a GM of the Minnesota North Stars. And he lived in Edina, Minnesota, which is the town that I grew up in. That's where I went to high school. And I went to his house. His late wife was still alive. And we sat and drank beer on his patio. And drinking beer with Bob Ganey is a big mistake. Because Bob Ganey can drink a lot of beer. <laughs> But we were drinking. I had ice-cold Heinekens in a bucket. And right. we're out on a nice summer day. And I said, Bob, I, I need some guidance. I went to him. I went to Harry Sinden, too, and asked him. But Bob said, he said, so one job where you're driving to work and you're worried about your team. You drop your kids off at school and you're worried about your team. You're watching a movie with your wife and you're worried about your team. It consumes you. And he said to me, he said, do you think you were the best assistant GM in the world when you worked for Pat Quinn in Vancouver? And I said, absolutely. I, I shouldered the load. I did more. I took more work off of Pat's. Pat Quinn's desk than anyone else. And he said, do you think that helped Pat when he was driving home? And he realized, no, when you're the GM, it's all on you. And it's your coach's fate. If you get fired, the coach is probably going to get fired. He's got a wife. He's got kids. So there's five people you got to worry about. Mark Crawford had two kids. So there's four. Mark Crawford, Helen, his, two, his daughter and his son, there's four that I'm responsible for. Then Mike Johnson, his wife and their kids. There's 60 people, 80 people, 100 people besides all the fans. And that's, you're driving home at night, and if the team doesn't win, they're all at risk. Like, after I got fired in Toronto, like, 60 people got fired. Like, 16 people, but with their families, it worked out to about 60 people, I think. I added it up one day, 50 at least. So that's what you're responsible for. And the math is terrible. Like, there's 32 teams come next year. And I watched all these owners. I was in the room. They all raised their arms so fast to vote for expansion. So they wanted the money. But now... You're due to win a cup every 32 years. If you're a Montreal Canadiens fan, you're mathematically due to win a cup. And by the way, their team is going in the right direction. Great. Bergey's doing a great job with that team. Yeah. But you're due to win a cup every 32 years. And these owners that voted for expansion, 
they don't understand that math. They're like, what do you mean every 32 years? Mm -hmm. I'll give you a three-year contract and I want to win a cup in three years. So it's, it's, it's gotten harder. Yeah. And we all, all the GM supported expansion too. Guess what? There's three more GM jobs. Yeah. If we had three teams, there's three more. Yeah. We want expansion, but the math is very difficult now. It's so hard to win. And when I got started, we didn't have social media. Now you've got that whole backdrop to deal with, to contend with, which is really hard. That's that's absolutely true. You mentioned uh, uh, Marc Bergevin's job and also the Canadians who for the first time in my lifetime, I'm 31, are actually heading in the right direction. You know, the, the whole post, post Patrick Roy and all that. Now we're finally heading in the right direction with Suzuki and KK and, and uh, Price and Weber. What do you think of Mark Bergevin's job last summer, adding you know Anderson and Toffoli and Jake Allen, and how far down the road do you think the Habs are from uh, maybe being actual contenders? Well, I picked them at the end of the season. I picked them as the I think the fourth or fifth closest to the cup of the Canadian teams. Right, and then when we came back, I picked them as number one. I think they're closest to the cup of all the Canadian teams. Really? I think they're ahead of Edmonton with their two superstars. I think they're ahead of Vancouver with their great young players. I think what Bergey's done, and, and first off, I'll tell you a story about Mark Bergerman. So when I went to Hartford, remember my first summer there, and I'm meeting with the staff, and Mark Bergerman was on our team. And we had to qualify him. And they're, everyone's like, you, you got to get rid of him. He's no good. So <laughs> I, I, hadn't, I didn't know much about him. So we, we just cut him loose. We didn't qualify him. And then I realized what a good player he was. So I saw him years later. He was in the press box in Boston. We were playing there. And he wasn't dressed for some reason. Or I was scouting there. I don't know if we were even playing there. But I saw him sitting there. I went over to him and I said, I owe you an apology. I said, my staff told me you were no good. He played 15 years after that or 16 years after that. I had him in Vancouver. I brought him back as a player in Vancouver. So I love the guy. But I went to him. I said, I owe you an apology. My staff told me you couldn't help us. I had no idea how good you were. I made a big mistake. And I'm not afraid to admit I made mistakes, and I told him that. So with Bergey, so I don't know if you remember, but Colby Armstrong signed with Toronto, with uh, Montreal. Yep. Uh, we didn't qualify him, and Colby tweeted at 9 o'clock in the morning of free agency on July 1st that he was a Montreal Canadian. Well, that's tampering. And, right. And so the, Bergey called me and said, what are you going to do? And so I heard the league was really mad, and the league was going to, take a draft pick away. And so I said, well, I told the league, if you take a draft pick away from them, I want the draft pick. Toronto, we want that draft pick. Right. And then Bill Daly said, no, we think it was just an honest mistake. And I said, okay, then, then we drop it too. Like, I didn't want anything from Mark Bergeman or Montreal Canadiens unless the league was going to insist on it. If the league didn't care, then I didn't care. Right? Kobe Armstrong's a great guy. Bergey's a great guy. So um, I think he's done a really good job. I love I love the, the – the, they're tougher, they're bigger. I, I, I really like Max Domi as a player, but I think the trade makes sense. Now they got uh, – with Josh, they got a big winger who can score. I don't think he's a one-goal guy. I don't think he's a 27-goal guy. I think on that team, especially now with bringing in Toffoli, I think he's a 20-goal guy and a 200-minute guy. And he's legit. Like, he's legit tough. I love him. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, Edmondson, I think, is a great pickup. I like the goaltending – Duo, I, I think I think Bergey's done a great job. Terrific. You you mentioned Hartford. You were in Hartford, and you famously drafted 
Pronger second overall. And, and what I love the most about that is the first overall pick that year said, I, I don't know if you remember that, but the first overall pick said, no, I'm no, really no, happy no, to be first. Second. Exactly. And Alexander Diggs said, nobody remembers who got picked second. He also said, I drink my beer. He made you fun say of that? Mandras. Yeah. That's awesome. Now he made fun of Eric Mundras, who allegedly spit beer on somebody. So Alexander Dake said, I drink my beer. So, but I will tell you this, like yeah. people love to make fun of Alexander Dake and the Quebec yeah. Nordique. We all had Alexander Dake up high. Like we loved him too in Hartford. Yeah. We had him at three. Right. So that's a draft. You had Pronger, Korea, Grattan, Niedermeyer, uh, Robbie Niedermeyer. Um, Robbie, yeah. It was a, an excellent draft, an excellent first round. We had Dave right up there too. I thought he was going to be a good player. We just we loved Chris Pronger. We thought he was yeah. the best player in the draft. You you mentioned Quebec City and you work for the league, so you know the real business side of the game too. You that's why it's, you have such a bit, uh, su such a full understand understanding of the whole game. Why are is there not an NHL team in Quebec? And can actually really there ever be, be a team in Quebec, or that's not that's not get, getting done? I, I I don't think so. And yeah. I'll get a lot of emails from people in Quebec. First off, there's three problems. One is they had a team, and they lost their team when tickets were thirty five bucks. Now they're three hundred and fifty bucks. Right. So number one, it's a failed market. Number two, there's not a good enough corporate base. When all the separatist stuff went through, all the banking industry, which used to be based in Montreal, yep. is all in Toronto now, except for Bank of Montreal. The corporate base isn't large enough. So that's your, your big ticket real estate, your suites, right. your club seats, your signage, you know, the, the, the big ticket expensive real estate. There's not a corporate base there. And I worry about Winnipeg for the same reason, I think long term. And three, the size of the market. It's just as passionate as the fans are. There's not, you need a couple million people basically to justify a sports team. And that's what the experts will tell you. They, they want to market at 2 million. We have some that are smaller. But no, I don't think there will be a team there. I, I, I can't see it. And by the way, I hope we don't expand again. Like enough. There's 32 teams, enough. So this would have to be a relocation. Right. And I hope we don't have to do that. I hope all the markets are stable enough to keep their teams. Well, everyone wants to know the truth, so thanks for that explanation because I think it's very clear now. Um, I also want to mention one of my favorite chapters in the book, of course, and must have been one, probably the hardest one to write, and uh, of course, the run about your son, Brendan, and I think it was very important to talk about him in the book and his legacy. Did you hesitate knowing how hard it is to go back there and relive that again? Did you hesitate putting that in the book, or it was, it was going to be in no matter what for you? No, it had to be in. Like, like it's a, a critical part of our family story. Like, it's not just my story. It, it's, right. uh, you know, so Brendan was, for people who are watching this who don't know, Brendan was my son. He came out uh, as gay and then shortly thereafterwards died in a car accident in the blizzard. And, um, no, it had, that part of the story had to be told because that's such a critical part of the Burke family. Mm -hmm. Like, we said, we met as a family afterwards and said, look, we can either sit by the side of the road and hang our heads and, and cry or we can march ahead right. and we made sure through you can play we made sure that brennan's memory isn't just a memory it's a legacy he's saving lives and changing lives as as each day goes by absolutely uh, he inspires people to come out in, in in hockey or any sports and this is the fifth season of the podcast we're doing right now i had on the first season 
uh, a few years ago, a guy called Andrea Baroni. You might have heard of him. Montreal. Yeah, I know, Dre. Yeah. Absolutely. He was the uh, first openly gay person in all of professional hockey. He was a referee in the East Coast at the time. And at the time, I asked him, uh, Andrea, how long do you think it's going to take for an NHL player to come out? And he said, I would say two, three years. Now, that was four years ago, almost five now. Um, still hasn't happened. I don't exactly feel we're anywhere close at this time, but I know you're in touch with the people from the community and you're, you're having dialogues and try to, to make things easier and, and, and start a transition. What's missing for an NHL player to feel comfortable to come out publicly this time? Well, you know what? You, you talk about um, comfortable, and I like that language better than I, I hear other people say when a player is not afraid to come out. And I don't think people understand. From my dealings with people in the gay community, it's, the, the hesitation about coming out has nothing to do with endorsements or teammates. The battle, and again, this has been explained to me by a number of my gay friends right. who have told me the battle about coming out it usually hinges on a close family member. Really? So if it's your mom or your dad who have told you your whole life that gay people are going straight to hell, it's your dad's brother, your uncle, your favorite uncle who tells you God's going to send these people to hell. Gay people are, it's a close family member. Hmm. And, the, and the person has a personal battle with A, battling with that family member and B, destroying the family unit. So you could throw a monkey wrench into your whole family unit. By coming out. And that's the battle for most of them. As it's been explained to me, again, I'm not gay. I don't understand right. all the issues. But as it's been explained to me, and I know my son was hesitant about coming out to me, and it was not an issue for me. Right. Like Brennan told me he was gay. I said, hey, you've given us a million reasons to love you. This doesn't change any of them. So in our house, it was a non-event. But my, my son still hesitated with me. So yeah. we have gay players in the NHL. We, we know that. Yeah. There have to be. Like statistically... We have gay players. We have had gay players. Yes. So when the first player feels comfortable, to use your language, or it feels it's appropriate and comes out, I think they're going to find a much more giving, accepting, inclusive landscape than they probably suspect they will. I mean, I've talked to my players about it on, on all my teams, and they've mm -hmm. all said the same thing. It wouldn't be a problem. You, you know, And that's the whole premise of You Can Play, our family charity, which is, If you're good enough to play on this team, you can play. If you can play, you can play. Doesn't matter who you go home with. Doesn't matter what church you go to. Doesn't matter what color you are. If you can play, you can play. Which is the uh, the, the, the campaign you started with your other son, Patrick, if I'm correct. Patrick, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, the fact that he passed away soon after, which is a really weird turn of events, but that, that high level of grief you had to deal with, how, I mean, for other parents that go through that sort of things, what would be your advice? Because you've been through that. And I mean, it's, it's pure hell, but how did you deal with that? Well, I, I don't, what I tell other parents, I've tried to reach out to other parents that have gone through this that I know. Um, Neil Smith, my dear friend, he lost his son. Um, and all I can tell him is, you know, it tests your faith. If you're, if you're a person of faith, it tests your faith. Mm -hmm. It's hard to see that God has a plan to, to kill a 21-year-old great kid, like a wonderful, Brennan was a wonderful kid. So you hear, hear these kids that die young, and people say, oh, he was a great kid. Well, a lot of them aren't. 
A lot of them are very average kids. Some of them are bad kids. Brendan was a great kid, brilliant kid, sweet kid. Um, so the number one thing is, and, and I was, I, I am a Catholic. Uh, I, I have a lot less faith in the whole system of organized religion as a result of this, but still trying to find a solution. Um, but I tell people, one, rely on your faith if you can. My, my mom and dad were devout Catholics, and that's what sustained them through this. They believe that God has a plan. And you look at Brendan, 10 years later, he's still saving lives and still changing how people look at things. So he, he has had an impact. And my dad believed that was his role. So that's number one. Number two is time. Time is the best ally that anyone has that suffers a, a grievous loss. Is the only, I cried every day till after Brendan died, then one day I didn't cry. Mm -hmm. And then a few weeks later, two days in a row, I didn't cry. And now I get to the point where I'll go a month without crying. So time is the best ally you have. Other than that, you just rely on your friends, friends and family to get you through that type of thing. For me, it was work. Right. I had the Olympics right after. Yeah. I was GM of Team USA. I had to immerse myself in that, and that was the best uh, therapy for me. Great, great advice. Uh, to, to end, maybe on a lighter note, you've had so many great teams over the years. You've managed great teams, great players if you had to dress up a starting lineup out of guys that have only been on your team so i'm talking five skaters and one goaltender three of course three forwards two d's who would those five guys and that goaltender be goaltender be from your teams the teams you've managed wow that's a great question dave i'd say uh well a deer easy it's scotty and chris i would have been Connor surprised that, that was but, pretty easy yeah. an honorary mention i put uh francois beauchemin who was a great great supporting role player for me right in goal i put uh jay shigera won a cup with him and then i put sean burke as backup sean burke was really good for us in hartford yep at center i'd have to put mark messier like he was he was on, his, on the back nine with me but he was a great player and obviously a hall of famer yep uh right wing uh probably todd bertuzzi but i'd say i have to mention pat for beat too i pat for beat was yep. great for me in hartford Left winger, I put Marcus Naslin. Um, right winger, I'd have to put Tamu too. I'd have to mention him. Tamu Solani was a study. 48 goals my second year in, in Anaheim when we won the cup. Uh, left wing, Marcus Naslin and Jeff Sanderson. Jeff Sanderson scored 46 or 48 goals for me in Hartford. And Marcus Naslin was just a star for me, just a star player for me. Have you? Is there a reason you haven't even, we haven't even got to Pavel Bure? Oh, so you know what? That's the problem when you ask me on the air. I, I, I couldn't leave him off. I, I love Pavel. Yeah. I was mad at him when I traded him because he held true. out. But no, I'd have to I have to include Pavel Burry. But, but to me, he'd have to be be him or Tamo on right wing. They're both Hall of Famers. Yes. And honorable mention Pat Verbeek and then left wing. I, like I say, I have to Nazi and Sandy. Yes. And we're not even talking about the twins because we just can't get out at some point. There's just too many good players there. Yeah. Did you put I've, I've been blessed. I've, I've had, I believe you need stars to win. So I've always had star players. And when I didn't have them, I went out and got them like Phil Kessel. Right. So to me, when you need star players to win, and I've been fortunate, I've been, like you say, how do you mention Mark Messier? Don't mention Trevor Linden, who played right. a lot of center for me. I think he's a natural center. Don't mention Henrik Sedin. Don't mention Daniel Sedin. And I'll think after we get off there, I'll think there's five more guys yeah, I should have yeah. mentioned. 
Did you just did you mention uh, Beauchemin and Chigat uh, just to please me because they're from Quebec? <laughs> no, I want to compliment Jiggy. Jiggy's the best money goalie in, in our era. In, in the era when when J.S. Chigat played, he was the best money goaltender. Like when the game counted, even yeah. today, all Patrick Waugh, the great goalies I've watched in my life. Yeah. If you said we have to win a game seven, and I had to pick a goaltender, I'd pick J.S. Chigat. Well, his 2003 run was just one for the ages. And yeah. I heard him recently tell a story. He left the consmite out of the room because you don't bring a consmite back in the room when you haven't won the cup. And he he told the story. The guys didn't even know he won the consmite. Yeah. He just went back to the room. He was fantastic for us. And, and, and mind you, he didn't even start. The year we won the cup, he didn't start the playoffs because he had his son, Max, was born with one eye. And so Ilya Brzezgalov had to carry us through the first round and into the second round. So uh, Jiggy started late with us that year. Fun, fun story, actually. I, I got in, I played in, um, in a beer league like uh, this last year and go up to the face-off circle. And it was, it was J.S. Jaguar right in front of me taking the face-off. I was like, are you, not, are you not a goalie? He's like, not anymore. And won the face-off and got away. <laughs> He's actually great on the face-off. He's got a hard really stiff stick i was like there's you're much heavier than me there's no way i'm winning that face i mean he's still a good uh really good iq and then pascal like they're also playing d guys goaltenders have great iqs they don't need to be the fastest or the most you know having the best shouters they just do the right plays that they have a great pace for some reason of course yeah play. but and, and none of them play goal after they retire they all play out in the beer league That's absolutely true. I I I I met uh, Simon Gagné last year playing in his league. Like all former pros, I was like, "This is going real fast." He's like, "Can you?" He's trying to organize tours with former goalies. I was like, "Hey, do you want me to put a, you in? You want to talk to Pascal Leclerc or Jagger?" He said, "Those guys, they they don't even want to hear about it anymore." I mean, uh, Leclerc, he his knees are screwed. Just to play the outside game, the 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 Winter Classic, he had. He had shots in his knees to play one period, and he said he took like six months to recover from that. He actually has not recovered. So goalies are their their hips, their knees, they're done. <laughs> I know they're shot. It's terrible. Terrible. Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to speak uh, with me today this morning. It's a great book. It's called Burke's Life. By the way, I, I want to tell you, did it ever come up in a brainstorm to call it Life of Brian? No. You know the Monty Python movie <laughs> reference? Yeah, but Burke's Law was a, t a detective show, a cop yeah. show in the 60s. So yeah, that's, that's what that's I saw because I looked it up. Yeah. yeah, Did you know that show? Life of Brian? Uh, did I know Burke's Law? Yeah, I yeah. vaguely remember it. But it was, uh, it was. Uh, that's the name that, I mean, the publisher picks the name. I don't get to pick oh, right. it. I, don't, I didn't pick the photo either. I don't even know where they got that. <laughs> Life of Brian, did you see that movie? Famous uh, Monty Python yeah. movie? I'm a big Monty Python fan. Are you? Yeah. Well, that's a surprise. I, for some reason, I didn't expect that. So I'm on the board of Rugby Canada. Right. I played rugby for four and a half years after I quit playing hockey. When I was in law school in my first two years practicing law. Right. And the uh, I went to the Sevens tournament in Vancouver, which, you know, Sevens is a big deal. But people dress up for the Sevens, right? Mm -hmm. And my favorite costume was there was a guy dressed as King Arthur, And a guy behind him with coconut shells, hitting the <laughs> coconut shells. And so people dress up as Where's Waldo and all these different. Right. But the, my favorite costume was King Richard. And here's the guy with the coconuts behind yeah. him. As a reference to the Holy Grail, Monty Python and the Holy Grail yeah. movie, for those who haven't seen it, but hilarious. Uh, though. So we learned something. We learned a lot of things today. 
But we learned that Brian Burke is a Monty Python fan, and that's one I didn't expect. Yeah. <laughs> but love to hear. Brian, thank you so much again. Uh, for people listening, it's called Burke's Law, not Life of Brian, Burke's Law. It's available anywhere you can get your books. And uh, it's great. I, I, I went up to bed uh, much, much later uh, in the night than I should have because of that book. Couldn't drop it. So I couldn't put it down. Thank you so much for taking the time, Brian. And uh, are you coming back to Montreal anytime soon? Not anytime soon, but hopefully. <laughs> All right. Uh, we hope to see you uh, back in. Uh, well, you're, we can, I was going to say back in the game, but you're still in the game. You're, you're doing some uh, media coverage for Sportsnet. So uh, practice your French with your daughters. And we'll <laughs> have you back on the program and have you in French later on. Okay. Merci. Merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. Thanks. Sympathique Gaillard qui est ce Brian Burke, rien à voir avec son personnage d'alcoolique mal baisé. Merci encore à Brian d'être passé au podcast, ça a été un réel plaisir. Je vous rappelle son livre s'intitule Burke's Law, qui est euh, co-écrit avec Stephen Brunt, qui est disponible partout en magasin. Et c'est pas une, je suis pas payé pour ça, c'est vraiment moi qui, qui vous le rappelle de bon cœur. J'ai aimé lire le livre, ça regorge d'anecdotes savoureuses avec des détails croustillants que Jerry Rochon lui connaissait déjà de l'époque. Évidemment, c'est normal, c'est Jerry. Donc, il faut aller lire ça, c'est disponible partout en magasin. Si vous voulez avoir ces surprises-là, comme l'épisode de Brian Burke qui était sur Patreon des mois d'avance. Venez nous rejoindre patreon.com tape ça regorge de petits bonbons là, qui, qui sont déposés ici là, à droite à gauche comme ça. Sinon, c'était Brian Burke à Dreadsul Tape. Merci énormément d'avoir été à l'écoute. Et n'oubliez pas, Zdoum Bakto Rekim Dimf Pouz Ciao! Ok, bye bye!